we have been looking through Scripture, particularly the book of Luke, at encounters with Jesus. And when I read these, I think, I often like, what would it have been like to actually be there, the, to experience Jesus telling these stories? And I'd like to think that I'd be listening to everyone and listening very, very carefully, that I'd be paying attention to every single detail of the stories he gives. But uh, frankly, I know my own nature in specific and no human nature in general to think that I, I, I likely would have missed things that Jesus was saying. And yet the beauty, the benefit today is we have the opportunity to listen carefully to what he's saying. It's the same Jesus that spoke the words 2,000 years ago. We're reading those very, very words recorded. If you have your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 16 is where we'll be. And in your mind, in a moment I'm going to ask Daniel Sproul to come read for us. But in your mind, what I'd love for you to do is picture the crowd that's huddled around Jesus. In that crowd are Pharisees who are both self-righteous and and money-loving. That's what the scripture describes them. So they have that going on. And then there's also this, also in that crowd are followers. I mean, there are people that are just beginning to wrap their minds around what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And then there's a host of the undecided. They're just not sure what to think. And so they're all hearing these stories, these words from Jesus. So Daniel, if you could come and share with us from uh, Luke chapter 16, and he'll begin reading from verse 19. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into a place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So we've been walking through the words and even the actions of Jesus. I think maybe most helpful to process this story together, maybe we could ask some questions. 
I think these, this parable gets right to the point of making us look inside and make sure we're listening pretty carefully. One of those uh, subjects that comes up again and again in Luke is the subject of wealth. And particularly here, I think the question that this parable makes us ask is, do you recognize that wealth can be, can be spiritually destructive? It doesn't have to be, but do you recognize that it can be? So that's not the only point of the parable, but as Jesus teaches, again and again he comes back to this, that wealth can be spiritually destructive, and we need to be reminded of that because we live in a world where, I mean, just billions of dollars are spent telling us that what you want, the ultimate thing in life is to have a a ton of money that you couldn't imagine how you would spend it all and to stockpile it up and to make life more comfortable. And and Jesus comes with such a countercultural message, doesn't he? Do we understand, do you realize, do you recognize that wealth can be spiritually destructive? Do you see it in the story that Daniel just read? So we have a man that while he is rich, he didn't focus on his own soul. How do we know that? Because in verse 23 it says, and in Hades, he, he lifted up his head and he found himself where he probably never gave a thought to being. And in this story, this man didn't focus on his own soul. Um, Scripture says you cannot serve God and money. When you have an identity apart from God and you've lived a life apart from God's grace and apart from God's strength, this is where life goes. And often, I think the message of all throughout Luke is just be careful. Be careful that having money, or certainly the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, can put blinders on us where we don't see what we need to see. And particularly, he didn't see where his own soul was going, this rich man. But, but also in this parable, the rich man is so blinded by his wealth that he doesn't see others. He doesn't focus on others. So did you notice, I mean, it's a, it's a pitiful, pathetic description of this man who can't even get to the gate himself. He has to be laid by the gate of this rich man. And you can imagine this rich man walks by that gate and sees this beggar and all this beggar wants is crumbs that fall from the table of the rich man. In a sense, he doesn't even have eyes to see it. So the wealth has blinded him. He goes into his comfortable home and this is exactly what wealth can do. The love of wealth can blind us to even the simplest forms of what Jesus has said is like basic commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. I, I didn't, I, I don't know that I ever picked up on this in this story until I read and reread and, and then read what others had to say about this parable. But the, the rich man who walks by this beggar, walks by this beggar for day after day after day, he knows the man's name because when he meets his maker, when he's in Hades, he He asked Father Abraham, he says, hey, could you send Lazarus? He knows his name. So he knows enough to know his name, but doesn't even, doesn't even help him. Do we have this sort of blinders, the money, the pursuit of it? And you may, I, I feel like wealth can, can do strange things to us. I mean, whether we have it or whether we just want it, it can do strange things to us. Are we on guard? Do we recognize that wealth can be spiritually destructive? By God's grace, I mean, when we have the Holy Spirit, he gives us kind of just rewrites the values of things and we recognize, yeah, there are treasures 
that are laid up in heaven and no thief can take them and nothing can corrupt them. And, and by God's grace, we can live as if knowing wealth can be potentially destructive spiritually. But we can use what God has given us by his grace to focus on serving others. Do we hear that question about wealth? And what is our answer? I, th- I think there's another question that just sits right on the surface of this parable. And that is, do we feel, do you feel, do I feel the weight of what comes after life? So when we meet the Lord, when we meet our maker, when we meet Jesus, do we feel the eternal weight of the afterlife, if I can use that term? You know, as I grew up, I, I heard this parable taught and I heard it preached and regularly this was the focus. And I can certainly understand why. I mean, if this, if this parable doesn't get your attention, I'm not sure anything Jesus says will. Jesus, I, I wonder if we realize, do, do you know that Jesus talked more about hell than actually he did about heaven? But he talked about facing the end and facing eternity a lot more than we tend to think about it. When I read this parable, I, I know it's figurative language. And so for parables, we don't like form all of our doctrine based on every nuance of the parable because it is figurative language. But, but by the same token, what I, what I don't ever want to do is say, well, Jesus said this, but we've kind of come to see things a little bit differently in 2016. It's kind of different from what Jesus... I never want to say that. I never want any of us in church to, to try to help Jesus along what he really meant. What We don't want to do that. We want to hear straight from Jesus, from his words, what he had to say. And what he would say is there is a place after, after death for those who haven't made spiritual preparations, and that place is one of conscious anguish. I read it in verse 23. I mean, so... So he's in Hades, this rich man, and he's in torment. In verse 24, it, he says, I'm in anguish in this flame. In verse 25, he says, he, he recognizes that he is in anguish. And, and, and we say, well, it's figurative language, so I'm not sure the flame's literal. And then I would just ask, well, what do you think the figurative language means? It can't mean anything good. It can't mean anything comfortable. Even if we grant it some figurative language. There's a life that's lived apart from God. Where do we think that heads? The person, the one perhaps in this room, who says, you know, I just don't know that I'm interested in that right now. I'm kind of doing things my own way. The person who says that repeatedly and repeatedly to Jesus, where do we think that will end? Do we not have a category? I mean, when someone does me wrong, when someone, you know, let's say someone cheats me, I feel like, you know, personally offended. I think someone ought to do something. That ought to be made right. And that same, that same logic of justice, certainly eternity should sort out all the just ways of God. And Jesus says it will. There's so many other places we could go in Scripture. But even here, do we understand the nature of what it means, what our sin is against God and where a path of sin, a life of sin that we don't turn from, we don't ever turn from, our anger, our bitterness, our lust, our, our greed, all of that. If we pursue that, do we, do we not think that has a destination? And Jesus is calling our attention to it in a pretty stark way here. I think even knowing the difficult doctrine of hell, the reality of conscious anguish, makes me, stirs in my heart a deep love for the Lord and 
a love for Jesus Christ because I, I do believe he took hell for me and for you so that you would not have to endure it. But are you just going to turn from what Jesus has done and say, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. I, I have to tell you, I mean, I've lived around church and, and Christian school and, and all that all my life. And I've heard lots of jokes, jokes about hell. I grew up in the South, so I heard tons of country songs that kind of just made light of hell and made it one big joke. And I, I may have a serious personality, but I just don't find any of that funny. I really think there will be those that wake up with anguish and torment. And, and God's not playing gotcha games here. They're a person that lives a life and will be apart from God and no to God and no, and no spiritual preparation. And then one day they realize this is where they were going all along. Do we think about it? This place of conscious anguish, do we think about it? Even in verse 26, it's described as like there's a distance, right? So this is what, this is what Abraham says, Father Abraham. And Jesus is putting the words into Father Abraham's mouth and saying, there is a, a great chasm, there is distance. And, and it's not like you're going from here to there. There's a great distance that, that none can get across. And verse 26, it's not only anguish and distance, but it's permanence and and it's not like the rich man is saying, well, hey, can I, I kind of had enough of this and I'd like some of that. And so can we, there's no, there's no like switching teams midstream after you die. And it's reality. I mean, Jesus is bringing this to people that are there to listen. And in verse 26, it's like this great chasm is fixed. And so here, here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know we're busy. I know we hear even words like that and sometimes we feel, ah, there's not much urgency to me. I know we hear about heaven and hell and they seem more distant categories than present realities. The question I have to ask is, are there any steps you might need to take feeling the urgency of something that could create such anguish and distance between you and God and permanence? Is there something... And church, do we feel this at all? Does it make a difference to us? Does it make a sense that individually and collectively we ought to engage in telling others the message, the good news of Jesus? Shouldn't we move toward those people in need and build friendships with those who haven't heard this message? When there's such a reality, there's eternal weight. And I know a few things that bring us to like just the poignancy of that, like death does. An eternal way to, of, of seriousness. What happens in the afterlife? So this week, just a, one more reminder. This week was my, would have been my dad's 70th birthday. And so he is no longer on earth. And he has met the Lord. And it reminded me again, we're all living for something. And someday our lives will be done. I don't know whether that'll be 30 years for you, 40 years, 50, 60, 70, 80. But are you ready? Are you ready? This parable would say, don't put that off. Don't think you can play games with this. If, if we only see this parable in terms of like the dangers of wealth and the seriousness of what comes after we meet, meet the Lord in death, I think we could be missing something because there's another thing that comes up again and again in the book of Luke. And in some way, sometimes it surprises us when we see it. And that theme 
And I want us to to understand this and know this. When, When you read the book of Luke, look for the theme of reversal. Things get reversed a lot in, in, in Luke, where an expectation is one, one thing. And then all of a sudden, it seems like we had categories, but then those categories got reversed. Sometimes who we expect to be the hero ends up being the goat of the story. Who we expect to be the winner ends up being the loser. And the loser in, in the book of Luke becomes the winner. Sometimes those who we thought, man, what a foolish thing, end up looking, actually, that was a really smart thing. And the person that was smart ends up looking at how foolish. Sometimes the one who is blessed It seems like everything about their life is blessed and favored by God ends up being the one that's condemned and the one that seems condemned ends up being the one blessed. There's so many stories. I mean, we've talked about those over the last few weeks. There's this this great banquet and the the first people invited, it seems like, man, they are the ones that really get the inside track. They're invited and yet because they refuse, it reverses, doesn't it? The people that are last on the guest list end up being the ones welcome to the banquet. Even in the prodigal son, we have the story and we're just rolling along. Someone lives, you know, leaves father and leaves in kind of a huff and, and takes what, what's theirs and, and spends it all in a ridiculous way. And we think that person should pay for that. And we've got this other person that's living right and trying to do what's right, the older brother, and, and he's kind of proud of his record. And then all of a sudden at the end of the story, it seems like they get reversed. The, the younger son that comes home and repents is, is the one that gets re- welcomed by the father. And then there's one that's actually walking away from the father. And there's distance. There's this reversal. On this story, we see it, don't we? The story starts off with, like, the rich man and Lazarus. And in the beginning... It's the guy's rich and this guy's poor. And then we see the story reverses. We look at one who's neglected, just people walk by him, no one pays attention to him. And another who probably is esteemed pretty, pretty favorably in society. And then, and then at the end that gets reversed. And then we, we see the one who, who is like the, the bigwig who has the, the, he's the rich man. But in the end, we don't even know his name. And the one who is poor, we actually have his name. It's recorded. It's Lazarus just gets reversed. I think the first hearers of this parable, I mean, they're, they're hearing of all these reversals and surely they have to take this to heart. Surely this confronts them because likely in that audience were people that had great wealth and, and Jesus is saying, your wealth doesn't secure you against a potential reversal. Your love for money and, and the way you've used money to make your life more comfortable and it doesn't secure you against a pretty massive reversal. These Pharisees that were listening, they would probably, everybody would say, if you, they're righteous, you know, they, they pray these long, long prayers. When they give, they give a lot. It's like big donor time. They're, they're chunking down the big checks. They're, they're writing that. Look at those Pharisees. And yet they have to hear in Jesus' words this reversal that's coming. Jesus doesn't seem to endorse what they're doing. He exposes what they're doing and the pride in their hearts. And then there are always always these sinners that are hanging around like, shame on all the sinners. And Jesus is like rewriting the categories and saying, I welcome the sinners. It's just those self-righteous. They don't think they need me at all. Do we feel the reversal? The steady message of Jesus is to be prepared for reversal, but... I think there's an urgency in the passage because people aren't listening to that. 
Why don't we listen to Jesus? I, I wonder if they found Jesus to just be a, a frustrating figure to them and unconvincing, kind of on the other side of, of things, sees things differently, and I don't really need to listen to him. Or, or perhaps they find Jesus as irrelevant. You know, they, they have lots of things to do. You have lots of things to do on, on a Monday. You've got a, maybe a, a, a test to take, a paper to write. You've got work to go to. You've got a family crisis. And, you know, I hear all this stuff about Jesus, and I'm in church, and I, I, I get all that, but it just doesn't seem as relevant to me as, as all this other stuff that I've got going on this relationship relationship, that thing. And yet the urgency is growing. They're not paying attention to this call to repent. I wonder, what, what do you think of when you hear, hear the word repentance or repent? In Scripture, it's that change of mind that leads to a change of direction, a change of life. Jesus is telling them, repent, turn, change. And they're not listening. Repentance always takes humility, doesn't it? It always recognizes, I mean, if I'm going to change my mind, I have to realize I might have been wrong about something. I'm going to change my direction. I'm going to have to say, I was on the wrong path. Do we feel that? Are we being gripped by this? Can we go, as we're, as we're reading this, can we, can we ask ourselves another question? Are we spiritually prepared for a reversal? If Jesus is saying there's a reversal that's coming, are we ready for it? Because what we could do is leave this story of, you know, interesting story, serious story of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Or what we could do is bring that into 2016 and ask this question, am I spiritually prepared for this reversal? Or could I be being blinded by wealth and blinded by all the stuff I have. And it, maybe I'm not so ready for this reversal. Or maybe I have this illusion that, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I try to do my best. I treat people fairly well. And so maybe I'm okay. And, and maybe we're not prepared spiritually for this reversal. If anyone asks us, I mean, what, what does the message and person of Jesus Christ mean to you? What does it mean to you today? So Jesus is telling this story, and I would guess lots of people are uncomfortable. Lots of people are, are squirming like, what, what, what is he saying? I mean, we've got a, a rich man, and he's in Hades, and he's crying out. We go back to the story that Jesus told. This rich man, after recognizing his own situation, he begins to get concerned, doesn't he? Don't you see it? He gets concerned. He He's concerned about his five brothers. So, so look at it in verse 27 and verse 28. He says, I beg you, Father, could you, could you send Lazarus to my father's house? I've got five brothers and can he go warn them? There's this reversal that I, I'm becoming aware of, but they don't know about it. And so could, could you send Lazarus? Maybe he could tell them. You sense this urgency that people need a messenger. My, my, my brothers need a messenger. And, and even in verse 30, I mean, they, they want, he, he says it again, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So you sense this urgency from the rich man. People need to be ready. They need a warning. They need a miracle and then maybe they'll repent. The only way you avoid disaster is to, to repent. 
And Jesus gives an interesting response. We could easily just move on past that response way too quickly. So what is Jesus' answer to that? So Jesus has been, you know, he has been kind of put in the words of the rich man. Like, well, if they just had a messenger with a warning, and Jesus says in verse 29, they have a warning. It's Moses and the prophets. And you get the rich man go, no, 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 no. If they had someone come from the dead, maybe in a vision or maybe it's a ghost, if they had that, if they had this kind of unique experience, if they had some sort of spiritual buzz, if they had that, then then they would change their mind. And Jesus again says what they need and what they have is Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What's, what is it with Moses and the prophets? Why would Jesus say, okay, if you don't want to go to Hades, and if you don't want to experience rejection, and if you don't want to end in this place distant from God, what could possibly be in Moses and the prophets to make us ready to meet not only our maker, but our judge? What could make us ready for that? It's interesting as you read through Moses and the prophets, that's it's basically kind of, I don't know, code language for the Old Testament. Old Testament beginning with Moses, ending with the prophets. Moses and the prophets would, would tell a story of people living in bondage. So all throughout reading the Old Testament, you read of a people in bondage. But Moses and the prophets said there would come a day, a new age, when someone would rescue those people of God out of bondage. And the prophets would say, be ready for that. Because there's someone coming who's a rescuer. It's going to take people out of bondage. Be ready for that. See, when you read Moses and the prophets, you read a record of this nation that needs a ruler to lead them. And, and sometimes they get decent kings and sometimes they get awful kings. And, and, and often the nation is a mess and there's this desire, we need a king, we need a king that will come and rule us. And, and in Moses and prophets is there is, a, there is a king coming and he will set up a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And so be ready for that king. He's coming. When you read Moses and the prophets, you read of people who, I think just like you and I, live with guilt and shame. They did things wrong and they felt bad about it. That's the human experience. They felt separation and alienation from God. They felt God's displeasure. But see, in the prophets, there's this, there's this story that begins to emerge and that is God, God's people aren't always going to live in his displeasure and kind of alienated from God. God is going to send someone to reconcile his people back to himself, going to restore the relationship between God and his people. The prophets would say, be ready for that. Be ready for the one who will reconcile. People lived in desperate need for someone to just come and tell the truth. What is God really saying? Among all the false prophets, all the lies, we need someone to say, like, this is the truth. And and the prophets say, "There's there's a... There's a true prophet coming and he will speak the truth. You better listen to him because he's coming. The people walked in darkness and just needed like a spiritual light and 
The prophets would say there's a light coming and that light, light will shine in darkness. There are people that lived in, in places where there were enemies and, and they needed a warrior to go out and deliver them from their enemies. And the prophets say there's a warrior coming. In a time of peace, the people lived in a, a state of, of a harassment and, and really helplessness. And, and even the, the spiritual leaders of the time weren't always that helpful in this. And the prophets would say there will come, there will come a day when there is like a true shepherd, a good shepherd, the great shepherd, and he will gather all of his people together and, and they will live in his protection. The people lived like knowing even their, their best determination to do the right thing would often fall short. And, and the prophets would say, there's coming a time when God is going to so rewire your heart and take it from a cold heart to a heart of flesh And you will actually have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. That day's coming. Be ready for it. That's why it's so critical at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Jesus said, if you want to know what all all of Moses and all the prophets are about, they all speak about me. Do we realize this? So when Jesus was saying they have Moses and the prophets, what he was saying is, all of what you read in the Old Testament, it's preparing you for someone to come and come with a new age and a new kingdom. Jesus is our savior. He's our king. He's our lamb. He's our truth. He's our light. He's our warrior. He's our shepherd. What we need is to listen with ready hearts to the message coming from Jesus. But, but here are a bunch of Pharisees and here's a crowd that, that Maybe they're not listening. Maybe they think, ah, oh, maybe, there's, maybe there's another path. I hear that, Jesus, but I've got my own thing working. John came with this message, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So turn around, change your mind, and get caught up in another story, not your own. Get caught up in the, the story of redemption that God is telling. Jesus would urge, urge people to repent, to turn, to change. So he goes to these towns again and again. And in Luke chapter 10, he's, he's saying, you, you ought to listen. You ought to turn. You have no excuses. In Luke chapter 11, he reminds us of Jonah and Nineveh and said, Jonah went to Nineveh and the people of Nineveh turned. But, but here you are and, and you, you have exposure to God's word, but you're not turning. You're not recognizing who Moses and the prophets were pointing to. We hear talk of repentance and, and even hell and may, maybe that unsettles our soul. And, and yet, do you hear what Jesus is saying as well? I, I, I think sometimes we hear repentance and go, you know, Curtis, if you knew all the bad things I've done, I'd be the first person disqualified from, from repentance. I could never repent. I could never say I'm sorry enough. But, but hear what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 5. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke 15, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who behave themselves well but actually don't ever need to repent. Do we see ourselves? Do we see repentance largely centers on a person? Are we turning to him? Christian, take courage in that 
the moment you repent and turn from everything else, from your sin, even from your righteousness, from your, your own ability, from all your mistakes and all your shame. Whenever you turn to Christ, take, take heart and take courage that the grace of Jesus meets you there. Jesus isn't playing games. He's not moving goalposts. It's no bait and switch. What he says is, you turn to me, you trust in me, and I'll give you life. He knows our name. He welcomes us, not I just into the presence. I mean, the parable is wonderful, like into the presence of Father Abraham. But how much more when it's actually the presence of Jesus that we're welcomed into. We don't have to be afraid. We can be eager to meet the Lord. Because Jesus receives sinners who repent. Actually, the biggest, biggest danger is not to the person that feels guilt and shame. It's to the person who thinks they're okay. The biggest danger is to all of us that walking in this room thinking, you know, I think I'm okay with God. I think everything's all right. I, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to make my own way. Repentance says, don't, don't look to yourself to be ready for a reversal. Look to Jesus. Look to him. Turn from everything else. But you don't turn to a moral code. You turn to a person. You don't believe in your, your, yourself and your own ability. You believe in a person named Jesus. You follow and obey him. Repent and follow. Trust in his work for you. Trust in the life that he lived that all of us fall short of the perfect life. Trust the death that he has died in your place. Trust the resurrection that assures your right standing with God. I was reading... Again, in Luke 16, and you read to the end, verse 31, and there's something in me that wants, this, wants to ask this question. And Luke is notorious for this. He doesn't tell us, like, what did they do? How did they respond? Like, I want to know what they did. I mean, they heard Jesus talk about hell. Were they all like, we got to turn? I mean, what, what was the response? We, we don't see it in that passage. I think a reason why Luke doesn't always include the response is in some ways to hold up the mirror and say, maybe it's not even here so much about how they respond. But how will you? And how will I respond? Well, I feel the urgency of this message. Well, I feel the urgency of Jesus at the center of my life, not just kind of this peripheral thing that I'm glad to, I'm glad he's there when I need him. Or is he right at the center? Am I finding that my own stuff or my wealth or my possessions crowding out Jesus being front and center? Am I, am I getting rather proud of my own righteousness and it's crowding out the, the righteousness that is not my own, but that comes from Jesus? The message is urgent. So I ask you today, like, how will you respond? How will you prepare and what are you doing now to prepare for this reversal that's coming? I ask you to bow your head. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of praise. And that song will be, thank you, God, for saving me. Because what we've just read about, we cannot save ourselves out of that. We need a rescue, and that rescue won't come from ourselves. Will come outside of us. 
But today, can I ask you just to reflect in your own soul of am I prepared for a reversal? Have I repented if I turned? Father, where our hearts may have been unsettled by the parable, I pray that your Holy Spirit would settle us not on anything false, but on the truth that our only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see our own spiritual condition. Let us be turning to you and trusting in you, not counting on anything else. Or may we be a people prepared for this spiritual reversal. And I pray even now that you'll hear our, our confession of thanksgiving, that because of what Christ has done, we can be prepared and settled and assured in our hearts. We ask all this in his name. Amen.